The text today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 22. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray before Paul comes. God, thank you for your word, your truth. I thank you for Jesus Christ that died on the cross for our sins. I pray that we would come to Jesus for rescue from our sins today. Holy Spirit, you hold the key to every heart. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would implant your word, that it would bring forth fruit of repentance and the fruits of the Spirit. I pray for Paul that you'd give him peace and joy and courage as he proclaims your word. God, we thank you for our the truth that you've given us. Amen. As we come to uh, this passage of Scripture today, I made a decision into the, about 10 minutes into this sermon in the first service that I would only get half of it done. And so the first service got part A. Um, you're going to get part B. And tonight, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, but you can always listen to part um, one if you choose as we come to this passage of Scripture, the title applies to the whole text, both sections, and it's simply a familiar phrase to us, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. 
It's a phrase that we often use to um, mean that you can't simultaneously have or keep your cake and eat it as well, or eat another's. We use it to describe often someone who wants to have it all, or someone who wants to have two incompatible things, someone who wants to have it both ways. And that's really what's going on here in the church at Corinth. They want to have their idolatry, and they want to have worship of God as well. And it's not something that is just a trouble uh, for the Corinthians. It is a trouble for you and I even today. The issue that Paul is addressing uh, in this chapter, and in fact, in these chapters from chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 11, is the issue of Christian freedom. How we use the freedom that we have in Christ in non-moral issues, for instance, to, to um, exercise our faith in Christ. And Paul uses this general concept of our Christian freedom and uh, illustrates it through this specific issue of eating meat that's sacrificed to idols and at the same time enjoying fellowship with God. And Paul's point is going to be again and again that the two are incompatible. You can't have both of those. You can't have worship of idols and worship of God. This issue of worship or eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols begins in verse 1 of chapter 8 and continues all the way through to verse 1 of chapter 11. It's a serious issue in the church in Corinth. And on one level, Paul is concerned that those who uh, have this freedom to do that exercise that freedom at the expense of the conscience of the weak. And so in chapter 8, that was one of his issues, was that you just can't go about doing whatever you want, regardless of the impact that that has on those in the body of Christ who might not see that freedom in the same way. Come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 is largely about Paul saying, listen, I have a right, and that right is to receive material benefit from you because of spiritual blessing that I give. But Paul says, I choose to waive that right, because I can. I don't have to exercise my freedom. I can um, live without choosing to receive money. As we come then to chapter 10, Paul drives home even a more serious point, and it's about his uh, discussion with these Corinthian people about their participation in idolatry and their unwillingness to give it up because of the temporal consequences. In other words, they want to continue to worship idols and eat meat that's offered to idols because of the implications that will come to them if they give it up. Implications for their friendships, for their family, for their businesses, for their work. Any of us who have been Christian or parents understand this dilemma if we've had children and they are of any age. Because we know that as our children uh, walk through this world and as they walk through this life that they're going to face issues um, uh, that, that are going to challenge them. And we're going to say to them, listen, um, we don't want you to do that, even though everybody else is doing that. And even though it might mean that you're left out, even though that might mean you're ostracized, even though that might mean you're criticized, that's not something that you're going to do or our family will do. But it is difficult to communicate those truths to children. Well, this is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthian church. Idolatry takes many forms. It's not just about meat that's offered to idols. Idols come in the form of money, of our bank accounts, of our seeking of pleasure. Our family can become an idol. Sports 
can become an idol. Entertainment, sex, work, relationships, travel, our obsession with health, the music that we listen to, the films that we watch, all of these things can begin to crowd out the place and the priority that God should have in our life. And we still try to maintain a relationship with both of those things, and yet, as Paul would tell us, you can't have your cake and eat it too. What Paul will argue and will point out to you is that behind physical realities are spiritual realities. It's really important that you understand that truth this morning, loved ones. Uh, It might just appear to be bread and wine or juice at the Lord's table, but there is a whole lot more going on behind that. It might just be a couple hundred thousand dollars in your bank account, which is just cold, hard cash, but behind that is an incredible spiritual reality. It might be just the albums or the CDs or the, uh, the, 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 the music that you've downloaded that is just physical stuff, but behind that are spiritual realities. And that's what Paul is going to want to drive home to us and to the Corinthians is that we need to understand that there is no such thing as a neutral object, that behind neutrality is spiritual reality. We're looking at, well, we won't look at them, but there's two chunks of Scripture that Chris read for us this morning. Uh, The first chunk of Scripture is verses 1 to 13. And really, the issue at stake there is Paul is wanting to undermine in the Corinthian believers presumption. He's wanting to undermine in them this cockiness or this arrogance or this pride, which he illustrates in verse 11, where he says, Take heed, um, those who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And he illustrates that through Old Testament examples about those who fell in their arrogance. And so Paul, in those verses, is going to, re, uh, to work towards undermining presumption. I hope we understand here, as people who are in this place today, that to receive spiritual blessing is not the same thing as entering into the privileges and responsibilities of that blessing. Every one of us here today has already entered into spiritual blessing. Whether you have given your heart to Christ or not, whether you are a follower of God or not, you have, in, you have received the blessing of song that has worshipped God. You have you received the blessing of the people of God lifting up their voices. You are here today maybe because of your family and because of their influence on you. But to receive those blessings is not the same thing as entering into them. And so that's what Paul wants to talk about in those first uh, 13 verses. The second portion of Scripture is where we will spend our time this morning is verses 14 to 22. And there Paul is going to make a case for religious exclusivity. You can only serve God. You can't have your cake and eat it too spiritually. You can't have God and idols at the same time. And his goal here is to undermine compromise. Is the tendency and the temptation that we have to try and sit on the fence, to try and play in as many fields as possible. And so I said his goal here is to undermine compromise. So as we jump then, to verses 14 to 22, Paul is going to deal here with this issue of exclusivity. 
And I appreciate the way he picks up this portion of Scripture by just talking to them as beloved. He's worked up. Don't, don't kid yourself to think that this is not a significant issue for Paul or for them. He's just reminded them of the fact that thousands of people, in fact, everyone who came out of Egypt into the desert died but two because of their compromise and because of their presumption. So Paul is worked up about this, but he still speaks to them with compassion and tenderness. Beloved. It's such an endearing word. I want to just say something. I'm going to jump back, and I know we're going to regret it because we will be here for two hours. But I want us to understand, loved ones, the value and importance of the Old Testament. I wish I had $1,000 for every person who has made a comment or said to me, we don't need the Old Testament, I don't read the Old Testament, I don't care about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is too hard to understand. It really is not relevant for the Christian life. Paul, in the first 14 verses, goes through issue after issue after issue after issue that is recorded for us in the Old Testament. And he said, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not crave evil as they did. And then verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction. If you neglect the Old Testament, you neglect this wide range of gifting of God to you and I of instruction for life that we live today. And Paul connects it. He says, listen, this is important for you in Corinth, and it's important for us in Parksville. And in fact, he will say that the things that they experienced, the manna that they ate, the water that they drank, there was a spiritual reality behind them, and that the rock was Christ. And we say, well, did the Israelites see Christ in the rock? No, they didn't, but it's a way of illustrating that Christ was walking with them even through the Old Testament, that Christ is found in the Old Testament. As one person reminded me today, Jesus only preached from the Old Testament. And so, just as a side note, and that's for free, don't pass up study in the Old Testament. So Paul begins to speak to these Christians about the exclusivity of God. There's a very close parallel between what Paul says here in chapter 10 and what Paul says about sexual immorality in chapter 6. And just as union with a prostitute is unthinkable for a Christian, so becoming a partner at a table with demons is unthinkable for a Christian. Paul begins by really saying, I want you to think. I love this emphasis. We never say, and I've said this many times, we don't ever encourage you when you come in this door to check your brains out. When you come in these doors, you ought to engage your minds. And you ought to listen carefully, and you ought to absorb, and you ought to follow in the text, and you ought to go home and think this through and work this out. To not just trust yourselves to myself or a book or something else, but to engage your mind. Paul says very clearly in verse 15, Judge for yourselves, you're sensible people. Use your heads. 
And so as we're thinking about idolatry, use your heads. And also, notice there's a connection here between verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 is this text that we often talk about, and it, it, it does have broad general application, and probably many of you have memorized this. No temptation is overtaking you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will provide a way of escape through it. That is very true, but the specific application of that is to the illustrations of grumbling, of sexual immorality, of idolatry, and of testing Christ. And he's saying there is no test in sexual immorality. There is no test in idolatry. There is no test in doubting Christ. There is no test in your circumstances that is not common to everybody else. But God is faithful, and if you trust him, even though the consequences might be difficult, he will provide a way for you through it. But there's a danger if we stop there. And the danger is the implication, well, I just have to sit back then and let God. God will do it all. God's faithful. God will provide a way. Well, that's where verse 14 is so critical. What does verse 14 say? Therefore, flee idolatry. Those things go hand in hand. You don't bump up against temptation and play against it and have fun with it and test it out. As God is faithful and as God is providing you with an escape, you're running as fast as you can in the other direction. The two go hand in hand. And so Paul will say to them, I want you to flee from idolatry. It's an unrelenting temptation, idolatry. As one person wrote, it's spiritual quicksand, or idolatry is radioactive waste. It requires them to bolt from the area immediately to avoid contamination and certain death. For Paul, it's not about how near you can come to idolatry, but it's how fast and how far you can run from idolatry. Paul doesn't hammer them over the heads, but he offers this reasoned argument to them as they say, you're sensible people. And we are. God's given us minds. He's given us hearts. He's given us affections. We're sensible people. Think this through. And what he's going to do is he's going to appeal to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to participate in in a few moments, to make his point that sacrificial meals to idols Idols and participating in them are similar to participating in the Lord's table. But they're opposite realities. And so to avoid any conscious contact with idolatrous rites, no matter how meaningless or benign they might seem, is his encouragement to us. Whether we are worshipping our bodies, our bank accounts, whether we are worshipping our health, whether we're worshiping our spouse, whether we're worshiping our next trip around the world, um, uh, whether it's our music, whatever it is that we're worshiping, Paul is saying that we need to be very, very careful about our association with these things. The cup of blessing could be a reference to Jesus' blessing on the night in which he was betrayed when he prayed for uh, the cup, or it could be a reference to the fact that we will pray that God will be with us and he will bless this cup as we partake of it together today uh, after this message. It's not just any cup, it's the Lord's cup. 
And Paul is going to make a case that there are spiritual realities behind the Lord's table, as there are behind eating meat offered to idols. This is why we should never take the Lord's table lightly. This is not just a snack. These are not just Ritz crackers or pieces of bread and Welch's grape juice. And there is a massive danger in treating it as though that is all that it is. And Paul is saying that is the same in thinking that meat offered to idols is just like any other meat because there are no such thing as idols. Paul is saying there is a very real spiritual reality behind the physical reality. And that is why I think there's such a considerable warning that Paul makes about treating the Lord's table with triviality. He's saying, oh, I'm just a little bit peckish today, so I'm going to participate. Or, yeah, I don't really care what it is, but everyone else is participating, so I'm going to participate. I don't really know what it is to have a relationship with Christ, but, you know, I'm going to participate anyhow. And Paul will say that that same flippant attitude towards the Lord's table is the same flippant attitude that we often have towards things that are idolatrous in our lives. And so he's going to make three points, or he makes three points about this. And notice the word fellowship that is in verses 14 to 21. It's used four to six times in there. It's a critical word. But why is it so important as we come to the Lord's table to understand that it is more than a physical reality? Well, first, it says participating of the cup and the bread creates fellowship with Christ. See, when we partake of this, we are expressing our union with Christ, our spiritual union with Christ. And sacred meals are intended to create relationship or fellowship with the God that we're worshiping or that that represents in our life. And so when we partake of the Lord's table, we are participating in fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is a, a symbol of of our union with Christ, which we've been talking about for this whole year, that we are united with Christ. So it's not just eating bread and drinking juice. It is a very real expression of a very real relationship with our very real God, Christ Jesus. Secondly, this table also generates partnership or fellowship or communion with those around us that also participate in it. Uh, all of us who partake of this table are saying, I am part of the body of Christ. And one of the things that I don't know how we can ever get around of, but I wish we could, but I understand we can't, is that we have one loaf and one cup because the symbolism there is what Paul is getting at here. When you've got one loaf and you all take a piece of bread off of that, you are, you're recognizing the unity that you have with one another. And when there's one cup that we divide amongst ourselves, we're recognizing the unity that we all share in that one cup. We have all these little cups and all these pieces of bread. There's a danger to think, well, this is just a piece of bread and this is just a cup and there's no connection to the body of Christ. But Paul says, listen, when you come to this table, behind this table is not only fellowship with Christ, but there's fellowship with everyone else who participates at this table. Participation in a ceremony where they would offer meat to idols would be expressing not only one's solidarity with the patron 
who made that feast possible, but also your solidarity with everyone else that was around that table partaking of that meat that was offered to that idol. You can't be aligned to Christ and to an idol. The two don't go together. And thirdly, the emphasis on the blood sharpens the seriousness of the covenant relationship that we have with Christ. And it's the blood of Christ that seals us into this e eternal, exclusive, covenantal relationship with God. It's exclusive. There are no other options. There are no other uh, companions. There are no other gods. There is only our relationship with God that is sealed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You understand what Paul is saying then when we come to the table? It's not just bread and juice. It's a relationship with Christ. It's a relationship with one another. It's a covenantal um, relationship with God. And he ties this in then with the theological significance of participating in pagan sacrificial meals, which is idolatry. And again, please, don't get hung up on the fact that, well, Paul's just talking about meat offers to idols. He's using that as an illustration of idolatry, loved ones. And every single one of us wrestles with idolatry. John Calvin, I think it was, he says that the heart is an, idol, is an idol factory. We're always creating things to worship. And as soon as we suppress one thing, another thing pops up over here. It's like those pounded gophers. Smack one idol and another idol pops up. So Paul is not, he's using meat offered to idols as an illustration of the danger of idolatry in general in our lives. Notice again what he says in verse 18. Think. Consider. That's a, a word again that, that speaks about mental activity. Consider this. Work this out. As he said a little bit, you're sensible people. You've got good heads on your shoulders. Connect the dots. Work this through. The wilderness Israel met their downfall through idolatry. They ate at the altars of their gods, and they died at the hands of an angry God. So Paul says in verse 19, so what do I imply by all of that? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Remember, he's going back to chapter 8 now, and he, he said there, no, it's not. There is no such thing as idols. There is no such thing as food offered to idols because idols don't exist. So is Paul now contradicting himself? Is he backed into a corner? How can he argue that one is defiled and doomed for eating idol food if idols don't exist? How can a bond exist with a God that doesn't exist? Think about that. Is, is Paul cornered? Oh no, here's the heart of Paul's response, and we really need to understand it in its spiritual reality. Though idols are dumb, though idols are non-existent, though they might be a hunk of metal, a hunk of gold, a bank account, clothes closet, the next trip that we have planned, they still represent a reality that competes with God. Idols have no significance, but our actions do. Idols are not simply foolish, harmless 
human individuals or in inventions. Idols represent something demonic. So that any sacrifice to an idol is a sacrifice to a demon. What Paul is saying to them is, listen, idols don't exist, but the spiritual demonic influence in the world around us does. And behind the physical objects of our idolatry are spiritual realities of darkness. And that's why there's so much power in the idols that are nothing but that we worship. Because behind them are these spiritual realities. Behind all idols, whether statues or the idols of our mind or the making of idols in our present day culture, behind all idols is a force far more significant than a God that doesn't exist. And what is this force? It's a demonic force. Legions of fallen angels have fallen when Satan fell and was kicked out of heaven. They are now under his malevolent rule, and these demons are the force behind the physical realities that we worship. There's only two kingdoms, loved ones, and we have to wrap our heads around this. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. You're in one or the other. There, there are no other options. There are no other realities. Those are the two spiritual realities that exist in our world today. Paul says that in the last days, some will leave the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's just a book. It's just a book written by some popular author. Well, behind those words is demonic influence. It's just music. It's, it's meaningless. It's just words that I listen to. But behind those words is demonic influence. It's just a movie. It's, you know, it's just, come on, it's just entertainment. Enjoy it. Well, behind that entertainment is demonic influence. Ephesians 6.12. We know it well. Can't find it, but we know it well. What would Barry say? A little to the left, a little to the right, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Here it is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against physical realities, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Satan himself is an angel of light. In another place, Paul tells us to be aware of the schemes of the evil one. And so Paul uses this example and he says in verse 20 then, I don't want you to be a participant with demons. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to say that it's no big deal. They wanted to maintain their social contacts and their family relationships and their union associations and their prospects of economic growth and development in Corinth. And Paul is saying, listen, when you eat meat offered to idols and in those settings, you are participants with demons. Yes, idols don't exist. I get it, but demons do. And Paul's concern about their determination to eat at these pagan feasts and to pursue their idolatry 
is that their diners become partners with demons. These aren't just casual meals, not just simply innocent fun, not even an exercise of their freedom. But idolatry is joining yourself with demonic influence. All of idolatry. So then he comes to verses 21 and 22. And he says there, and this, loved ones, applies to all idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons can't have your cake and eat it too. There's no such spiritual reality. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Again, to drink one's cup means to enter into fellowship and communion with that person to a point of sharing their destiny. Drinking the cup of the Lord, which represents our binding covenant relationship with the Lord and embracing Christ's destiny in our future excludes any other idol that we might want to worship. So food from the table of the Lord is sacred. Food from the table of a demon or an idol is sacred to that deity. And the problem is not with the food or the drink, but with the different lords behind the meal. The problem is not with money or clothes or shopping or sports or entertainment or pleasure. It's with the lords that are behind those things. And so he asks two final questions to them. Will you continue to provoke the Lord to jealousy with your idolatry? The people of Israel continue to provoke the Lord to jealousy with their idolatry and they were strewn across the wilderness because of God's displeasure towards them. Jealousy of God is nothing like the jealousy of sinful man. The jealousy of God is pure and perfect. It's an expression of his holiness and his desire that we be totally committed to him and that we have no other gods before us but himself. Do you think you are free to participate at the Lord's table and then to run off with another idol from Monday to Saturday? Do you think we're free to come and worship the Lord and sing our lungs out and focus our hearts on minds and God and then leave here and embrace our idols all over again? Do you continue to provoke the Lord to jealousy with your idolatry? And the second question, are we stronger than he? Are we stronger than God? Demands an emphatic no, I hope you understand. There's not a person here that should say, well, I'll give it a try. Do we really believe that we can hold back the hand of God? Do we think that in all our human frailty we can stand against the I, almighty God? To persist in idolatry is to pit ourselves against the almighty God. It's a serious thing that Paul is chatting with these Corinthians about and us about. 
And the illustrations that he draws upon from the Old Testament are meant as examples for you and I to learn from. So that we might walk in single-minded devotion to the Lord. Don't try and sit at two tables, loved ones. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have more than one God. You can't have more than one master. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will love the other and hate the one. And don't kid yourselves. And I throw myself in there. External realities matter. It's not just something we buy. It's not just something we eat. It's not just the bodies that we have. It's not just the things that we do. Behind them are very real spiritual realities. As Paul reminded them, when we worship anything but God, we are flirting with demonic forces. So we come to this table today. It's a beautiful table, but it's an exclusive table. It's a table that expresses not just a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, but it's a table that expresses your fellowship with Christ. And all that has happened in order to make that possible. Staggering the spiritual realities behind a little piece of bread. And a little drink of juice. And behind this is not only an expression of our participation with Christ, but of our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. and our eternal covenantal relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, this is not just bread and juice. This symbolizes our life. It symbolizes our hope. It symbolizes our worship. It symbolizes our redemption. It symbolizes our salvation. Why would we want to sit at any other table but the table of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word and our time together today. I pray that as we gather around this table today that we would understand that if we're having trouble having our cake and eat it too, there's a very good reason why that is. And would you help us, Lord, to understand that by giving up everything for you is not a loss, but it's a gain. And by worshiping you, we have not only hope and help for this life, but we have hope and help in the life to come. That by worshiping you and by eating at this table, our sins... Oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. Our sins, not in whole but in part, have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Father, may this be a sweet, sweet time of fellowship for those who are your children, 
as we gather around this table and express our gratitude for our relationship with you, for our connection and our unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for being part of a covenant that will never, ever end. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.